Well, today, on the, in the liturgical year, the church remembers, as I hope has been obvious, the transfiguration of the Lord, of which we just read in the gospel text. However, our text is going to be the New Testament reading from 2 Peter chapter 1, which has become my favorite text on the transfiguration, because this text, the text in 2 Peter 1, it provides the apostolic interpretation of the transfiguration, right? You see the transfiguration event in the Gospels, and it's a relatively brief account. And then you think, what was that all about? What did that mean? Well, Peter tells you what it means. And so it's wonderful to have this direct apostolic-inspired interpretation of the event. And so we'll look at this text under two headings, the Apostles, and the prophets, they're on the back, the headings, by the way, the outline are on the, is in the back inside page of the bulletin. And under each heading, we'll look at what was seen and what was heard, because the transfiguration is a sort of sensory phenomenon which involves hearing and seeing. So by way of introduction, I want to point out that in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, before you even get to this text... Peter has already pointed the church to the coming glory of Christ. He orients us that way. God calls us, he says, to his own glory. His own visible radiance and splendor. We are to exercise faith, he says, all all the virtues. So that, Peter says, so that we might gain an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior. So the the coming glory, the eternal kingdom, are already introduced as governing ideas in the letter's opening forays. So with that, let's turn to what the apostles saw. So this is 2 Peter 1, verse 16. So Peter is associating himself here with James and John, who are with him, and he's speaking about the transfiguration, and he says this, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's concerned throughout the whole letter with these false teachers who he says, well, later he'll tell you in the book, they introduced these destructive heresies. And he refers you know, derisively to their teaching as cleverly devised myths, tales, stories, fables. So in contrast to them, Peter is concerned to assure you of the certainty and of the reliability of the apostolic gospel. That is one of the main functions this text has. Peter is writing to say, look, I can assure you about what you believe, contrary to these false teachers. Me and my colleagues, he says, did not follow, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that, right? The power and coming of the Lord is what Peter makes known when he reports the transfiguration, when he speaks of it. Or as the the New International Version put it, and this was the version read today, 
we made known the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. So the transfiguration obviously is a preview of Jesus' resurrection. In one sense, it's Easter in advance. But it's more than that. What is unveiled at the transfiguration is the power and the glory. Right? The ineffable radiance of the risen Christ. What the disciples saw on the mountain is what Moses entered into in the Exodus reading that left Moses himself transfigured. It's what John sees in Revelation chapter 1 when he sees the irradiated and transfigured Christ and falls down as if dead. And what is seen here, it's important to see that what is seen is seen visibly by the eyes. Jesus was not seen by faith on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was unveiled in royal glory, visible splendor. But Peter, now notice this, he extends the the significance of this event with the use of the word coming. The powerful coming or the coming in power of the Lord. For the risen one is the coming one. And the word that Peter uses here is the word commonly used throughout the New Testament for the second coming of Christ, parousia. He's already told us he's orienting the church to the future. In the third chapter, he'll address these false teachers again who mock where is the promise of his coming. And so... Listen, listen to what he's saying. He's saying the transfiguration not only is a picture of the risen Christ, it's the seal, it's the guarantee of his powerful coming again in glory. It is the power and the coming that is seen on the mount. It's an extraordinary interpretation. That which is normally veiled from our eyes that thin partition that separates heaven from earth is is peeled back, momentarily unveiled. And Peter, James, and John see the visible glory of Christ. And then, boom, it's veiled again. And it waits for the tearing at Jesus' appearing. It waits for the day when this visible glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah depicts this glory that Peter saw in Isaiah 25 as a canopy of glory that will hover over the new creation. And so Peter says, we were eyewitnesses. Notice, that's not the language of faith per se, right? We were eyewitnesses. We saw what our eyes, what men and women shall see when Christ appears in glory. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his visible radiance. And so therefore, he says, look, I can confirm for you now. Contrary to those myth makers and those false teachers, I can guarantee the authenticity of this gospel. Because I have seen the coming in glory on the mountain of transfiguration. 
his eyes had seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So the gospel then, that he's assuring us of, is intrinsically about the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. A power and a coming which has already been seen. Peter and his companions have already seen the end of all things, and they've seen it with their eyes. That's what the apostles saw. What they heard begins in verse 17. They speak of Jesus receiving honor and glory. This exalted status that's bestowed upon him by the Father's speech. And by this irradiation of his being with the glorious light of God. The transfiguration then reveals visibly the oneness of the Father and the Son. In a sense, we, the church talks about these things all the time. All of these things. But the transfiguration unveils them and says, that's what it looks like. There was, Peter says, a voice born to him from the majestic glory. The glory of God, which irradiates Christ, speaks. And so Peter's saying, look, I'm not only, I'm not only an eyewitness to these things. I am, if there is such a word, an ear witness. I heard a voice from the majestic radiance of God himself. And his concern is that this voice, this speech, authenticates the vision. And what does the voice say? It's quite remarkable. It says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Virtually identical words to the words Christ received at his baptism. You might remember that when we looked at the baptism of the Lord in January, because that's when we celebrated, we said that his baptism in water at the Jordan is linked to his baptism in blood at the cross. The two are locked together. Here we see that beyond the cross, his baptism points to his transfiguration and his coming in glory. There's a great genius in the way the church summarizes all of this. It does it in what's called the memorial acclamation when it celebrates the supper and says, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again in glory. That's the summary of the Christian faith. So, we ourselves, Peter says, heard this very voice born from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. The same place, the mountain that Moses was transfigured. The same place that John the Apostle is lifted up onto a high mountain when he sees the new heavens and the new earth descend. That's what the Apostles heard. So now I want to talk about the prophets. Look at verse 19. Peter says, we have the prophetic word made more reliable or more sure. The prophetic word here just means the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament as pointing toward Christ. And Peter draws out a practical implication for us. So if you're thinking, okay, 
Peter had a vision of the glory. What does that mean for me? Now's the time to pay attention. He says, we have this freshly confirmed prophetic word made more sure, and we would do well to give it heed, to pay attention. So this is interesting, right? The transfiguration means we should give heed to and attend diligently to the Old Testament scriptures. Now, I suggest that's not an implication you would just naturally draw from the transfiguration. That's exactly what Peter says, though. He insists that since the transfiguration confirms the expectation of the prophets, the prophetic scriptures, since this is the case, we should give renewed attention to the text. You know why, among other things? You're not going to get your own private transfiguration-like experience. That was for the apostles. The point of the transfiguration is not to create in us a hankering for visions or miraculous apparitions. The event confirms the prophetic text, Peter says, so now pay new, renewed attention, Christ-centered attention to the Old Testament text. Because the Old Testament text points to the messianic glory, points to the transfiguration of the cosmos. The tra- that is confirmed by this event, so now go back to the text, listen to it, pay attention to it, as he says, a lamp shining in a dark place. The prophets foresaw the glory of Christ and they left you a lamp, a textual lamp, a written burning light. Right? You know this. Psalm 119 says that the scriptures are a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Notice this also about this light. Peter says that this light is presently shining in a dark place. The dark place refers to this age, to what Paul calls this present darkness. We wrestle with principalities and powers of this present darkness or this present evil age. And the word for the dark place, the lamp is shining in the dark, is a graphic word. It suggests a squalid, murky dungeon. Into the dark dungeon of this age, the prophetic word shines like a burning lamp. Give heed to it. And, Peter says, that prophetic word predicts the coming of a day. Give heed to it until the dawning of the day, he says. Christ has already broken into the darkness, and we are still waiting for the full dawning of the light. So he says, listen, give heed to the prophetic word until the day dawns. You can stop listening to the prophets when the day of Christ arrives. But not before. Give heed to the prophetic word until the day dawns. That day is imaged. It's It's prefigured in the transfiguration of Jesus because Jesus' transfiguration is his coming in power. The night is almost gone, Paul says in Romans, 
The day is now at hand. So what's remarkable here, among, among many remarkable things, I think, is that the transfiguration not only confirms the prophetic word as a whole, but because it's about the Lord's coming in power, it confirms especially the expectation of a new creation. Especially that. A dawning day which is embedded in and central to the prophets. If you ask yourself this question, what did the prophets speak of? What did they see when they looked into the future and they saw this glory exploding? They saw a new creation. They saw messianic glory. They saw a reconfigured world. That's what they saw. And so we can never dismiss ourselves from the school of the prophets. We must heed them until the squalid night is gone. And until the day which has dawned in Christ dawns fully. Until the cosmos is transfigured with the same radiant splendor and visible glory that Christ himself was seen as transfigured with. That's what we're waiting for. Until we are bodies of light. Until that light radiates from the innermost being of the cosmos. And along with this dawning of the day is what Peter calls the rising of the morning star. Probably a reference to Venus, which was the star which heralded the morning. And by the time of the New Testament, it's a sign of the coming glory. In Revelation 22, in the last chapter of the Bible, after Christ has defeated all of his enemies and he's ushered in the eternal kingdom, he refers to himself as the bright Morning star. You're waiting, Peter says, for that. For that morning star to rise in your hearts, which means you are to subjectively participate in the objective renewal of the cosmos. What does Paul say in Philippians 3? When he appears, your lowly body will be conformed to his glorious body. That's what the prophets saw. What they heard begins in verse 20. So again, it's a matter of first importance. What they heard is this. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of the prophet's own interpretation. Right? The prophets, they have some sort of experience. Right? God reveals himself to them. And at the same time, they're given the divine interpretation of the experience. They don't follow their own imaginations. Peter says... There are men who spoke from God. You see both the human and divine authorship of Scripture here. Men spoke from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. In short, the prophetic word is God-breathed and inspired. So that's the Apostle Peter's remarkably dense and rich, and I think surprising, interpretation of the significance of the transfiguration. And I've really just glided across it. But I want to conclude with three practical implications of this Jesus' transfiguration for our lives. Because I am convinced that this text will touch down in your life and bring the assurance and comfort that Christ intends it to bring. So I want to focus on that now. So the first application here, the first thing to, to see, is that the transfiguration like so much in Scripture, is designed 
to orient us toward the future kingdom of Christ, toward his coming in power, because that's what the event is. That's what they saw. It's not simply a divine pyrotechnic display. Right? It's meant to reorient you radically to the coming city of God. It is the power and the coming of the Lord. It's true, Peter has the experience directly, but you get to have it indirectly through the text. Imagine having this experience that Peter has had. To see Jesus' power and coming in glory. I mean, what earthly thing do you think might quench Peter's desire after that? To see the visible, divine radiation illumining the risen Christ who is appearing. I mean, everything else after that would seem a sort of squalor. I mean, decades after this event, Peter is not sated, not satisfied. His thirst is not quenched. You can just read the opening paragraph of 1 Peter chapter 1. If you want to see a man completely oriented to the coming of Christ in glory. In fact, he says to the afflicted, suffering Christians of Asia, fix your hope completely on the coming revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a man oriented to his heavenly inheritance. He he leaves this event scarred. Nothing is the same after this. The whole shape and proportion of the picture changes. Imagine if you had had this experience. The transfiguration means we yearn for the glorious advent of our Lord. For then and only then, John tells us, and we heard this in the call to worship, that we will see him as he is. We'll experience the fullness and the permanent reality that Peter tasted on the mount. Then the veil, which separates heaven and earth, will be will be pulled back. Isaiah got a glimpse on the other side in Isaiah 6. Ezekiel looks up into this mystery at the beginning of his prophecy. And nothing less than this can be the church's chief desire. For the bride longs for the bridegroom's face. Not by faith, but as Peter, James, and John saw it for an instant, by sight. Secondly, Second application is in the meantime, this time of this squalid darkness. The transfiguration is to drive you to the prophetic scriptures. Because scripture is a lamp which is shining. The same light which illumined this Christ, if you will, shines in holy scripture. The lamp, right, the holy scriptures, they're not going to be necessary in glory. When this light comes forth in fullness to transfigure all things. Scripture is for pilgrims. It's for pilgrims who have to wrestle with the darkness around them and within them. So attend to it. 
Attend to Scripture because there, by faith, not yet by sight, but by faith, you can see the glory of God shining in the face of Christ in Holy Scripture. It's a textual, written, burning lamp for this age. Third, and this is where this really touches down in the brokenness of human existence. The church has wisely placed this text for centuries right before Lent. Because that's where it happens in the Gospels. Right before Jesus heads to Jerusalem for the cross. Right after this event, Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem and then starts to predict his death and the glory that will follow. And as such, then, this text is intended to encourage us in a kind of sober realism about the way of the cross as the only path to glory. It reminds us that the discipline of the cross and the daily life of repentance cannot be shirked or avoided. But here, here in God's kindness, we get a glimpse of the glory lest we lose heart on the journey. It's as if the church has said, look, you're about to go into this Lenten season where you're going to focus on repentance and self-denial, right, and death and suffering and brokenness. I want you to know before you go in, Christ is risen, Christ is transfigured, Christ is resplendent, Christ is irradiated with the divine light, and he is coming again in glory, and you yourself will be transfigured with that glory. Without that hope, how meaningless would our sufferings be? How unbearable would they be in the midst of life's travails? This is the pledge that you and the whole created order shall be a visible canopy, a visible display of public radiance and immortal glory. It's been a tough week. Julia's father died. I just did Don's brother's funeral yesterday. Donna Conklin is in the hospital for now the third consecutive week and has been declining in health for years. And I could go on and on and on. We, we are faced with shocks and blows from which it is humanly impossible to recover. Nothing else will answer to our predicament other than the risen, bodily transfigured, irradiated appearance of Christ in glory. If we do not believe this, Paul says, we are the most pitiable of people. Right? At the deepest broken darkness of the human condition, that is where the, what the gospel is designed to answer to. And if it can't answer there, what good is it? What good is it? Life is, in one sense, Lent. (laughs) And Peter is saying to his church, look, you're going to suffer. Many of you are going to die. But I want to tell you something. I saw the future on the mountain. And that's your future. 
We need to remember where we're going in the midst of the bitter suffering that we are called to bear. We need to taste and see the future or we will faint on the way. We need to see Jesus. We need to see him. And the Jesus we need to see is this Jesus. Risen, irradiated, and coming. So we say, come Lord Jesus. And while we wait, we pay careful attention as rapt students to the prophetic word, made more sure. So let us, as we enter Lent, embrace the way of the cross, for it is the only way to glory. You know, like the scriptures, this, this, this way of the cross is not necessary in the age to come. And in the age to come, you'll live in resurrection glory. There'll be no agony with sin and death and the powers. In this age, the only way we know the power of the Christ's resurrection is by conformity to his death. The Christian life is not a two-phase thing. There's not a cross phase, followed by later a resurrection phase, where you sort of put the cross behind you. It's permanent cross-bearing. And in the midst of that cross-bearing, we know the power of the life of Jesus. Right? This is why Paul says, I am always carrying about in my body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in me. There's no cross in the age to come, but there is a cross now. Finally, listen to these words from the same Peter. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Amen.